This morning, 2020 Vision, I thought I was being really clever with that title until last night when I got home from picking my daughter up at the Elburn uh, train station and my wife handed me her phone and showed me a Facebook post from a good friend of hers from college who happens to be married to my college debate partner who's a pastor in Ohio. And he, his message for this morning is how to have 2020 vision. So, um, yeah, not so clever. You know, I've, I've worn glasses since I was in third grade. So I'm very used to the idea that my vision needs correcting, right? And, you know, when you go to the eye doctor, you see an eye chart, right? And kind of, usually they have a big E. This one that I'm going to show you doesn't have one, but you know what the idea is. You take the eye chart, and it's supposed to show you if there's 20-20 vision. Someone got it. A few of you will get it. It'll take a little while. Um, the idea of an eye chart is 20 feet away, you, if you can read it, 20-20 vision, right? And whether or not you can tell me is the, dis- the determination of whether or not you need glasses, right? And the thing about vision is, though, it's, proper vision means more than can you read 20 feet away. What can you see there? Can you actually see that you've been rickrolled, for instance? I know that I'm getting older not just because of my musical references. I know that I'm getting older because this past year... My, my kids bought me Christmas presents for, from their own money. Like, not money I gave them so that they could do this, right? And then you realize the kinds of gifts that you get mean you're older. Starbucks gift card. Best of you 2 on vinyl. And a puzzle. Older. The other thing that you know when you get older is your eyes change, and even if you wear glasses, you start doing this. I find for the last year and a half or so, when I want to read something close, like the Bible I preach from, or my phone when I'm reading a novel late at night, I got to take my glasses off. I'm getting older. And vision can be a tricky thing, right? You think that it's okay, and that you're seeing the way that you're supposed to And you put off getting things checked out because you compensate. You get used to it. And then somewhere along the line you realize, I'm not seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing. I'm not seeing what I thought I was. And when we use the word vision, we think about that, but we also think about the future, right? What we want to accomplish, what we're about as individuals or companies or a church. Even countries. We do vision statements, right? Where should we be going? We want to see what the future has for us. And at this time of the year, we tend to take stock, right? We think about what's gone on in the past and what's coming in our own future. Do we like what we see? Do we need to make changes? This year, I'm going to fill in the blank. And I'm really going to change this time, right? And within days of the nostalgia of Christmas, we start looking for what's next and what's new and what's exciting. And we forget all about 
what we just celebrated four days ago. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. But there are new sales, and I have to pack up my Christmas stuff, and we have a week to pack in all the fun we can because the kids go back to school, and our vision gets blurry, and we don't even realize that our eyes aren't functioning right. We've lost sight of where we're going and why. So today, I want us to take some time and pause and kind of give ourselves a vision check. As we head into the year 2020, I want us to ask ourselves, what would it mean to have 2020 vision in both senses in the year 2020? Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in this last Sunday of December of 2019, and we we find ourselves in sort of an in-between place, and we ask that in this space we can pause, that we can see you more clearly, and that we can learn just a little bit more of how we are to follow you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I have three simple questions this morning, and I apologize for not having an outline in the uh, in the bulletin this morning. I got sick this past week. I should have known this was coming because it's about three years in a row. I'm beginning to believe that our Christmas decorations are cursed. Um, And so what we're going to do, we're going to cover a lot of scripture territory. There's not one passage this morning because the idea that I want to get across this morning is that all of this is one story. Old Testament and New, it goes together to tell one story, God's story. And I want us to think about these questions. And so this morning, you're going to see the questions on the screen and and some passages that we're going to go to. And what I ask you to do is write the questions down. and, And maybe as we go through some of these passages, kind of put a star by the ones that really hit home for you, the things that God is saying to you this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning, what issues you're facing, whether you're seeing pretty clearly and you only need a minor adjustment or if you need a totally new prescription. I don't know if you've got a good sense of who you are and what the future holds or if you feel like you're lost at sea, but I do know that these three questions have helped me. They've helped me to see a little bit more clearly to remember the point of Christmas that we just celebrated and to move forward accordingly. And whether we're young or old or somewhere in between, these are questions that every one of us can ask and answer. They're really simple. Why am I here? How do I get on the right path? And what do I do? Why, how, and what? It's pretty straightforward. Why am I here? Why are we here? We need to ask why, I believe, in order to see clearly. And I ask this question in two ways, both I and we, because as humans, we are both individuals and also we are always part of larger groups. Families, friends, churches, communities, companies, states, nations, and lots of other ways. As the poet said, no man is an island. Right? We are relational beings. And the question 
also asks us two different things. Why are we here now in this place, this church, at this time? Which leads to the bigger sense of the question, why are we here at all? Why does this matter? And some of you might be here this morning because a parent or a spouse dragged you here, made you come. Maybe you're here out of duty, sense of obligation to God or your family, something like that. But for the most part, though, though, if you're here this Sunday of all Sundays, you're here because you choose to be. Because you believe on some level that this stuff, this Jesus stuff matters. This Jesus whose birth we just celebrated four days ago is important. And when we stop to think about it, when we think especially about all of the stuff that has gone on in the last days and weeks, much of what we do as a society is wrapped up in this question of why. We just don't realize it. It doesn't matter if we are religious or irreligious, Christian or atheist, Muslim or Hindu or whatever we do or don't believe, all of us are looking for some kind of purpose in life. And think about the time, the amount, the sheer volume of time and energy we spend on obsessing over our own identities, whether it's us as individuals or being part of something bigger. Describing, defining, choosing, rejecting, trying on, becoming. It's part of growing up, right? It's what we do, especially when we're teenagers. You try on different interests and styles and peer groups and musical tastes and sports and drama and academics and all of those other things. Getting jobs, rebelling against it all. Go off to college and you repeat the cycle. And in many ways... We never really stop, right? We're constantly trying to define ourselves by our abilities, our job, our peer groups, our relational status. That's an interesting one on Facebook. Alone, single, involved, married, parent, widow, widower, divorced. We are defined often by our families, whether for or against. Increasingly, our culture says we are defined by our sexuality, even though we are increasingly confused as to what that even means. And we take great pride in defining ourselves, often defining ourselves by things that we have little to no control over when we stop and think about it. And deep down, we all know that defining our identity on our own is never going to be enough. I mean, why else do we start a couple of days from now obsessing so much on self-improvement? Going to eat healthier, going to go work out, no you're not. You know, all of those things that we do. Scripture tells us the story of why and why this all matters. Why we're here and what is our true identity. And sometimes we need to remember that story. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. It doesn't just start with the baby in the manger doesn't even start with creation, it starts before that. When we read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, God is first before He creates anything. Before we get to the very act of creation that starts everything for us, God is there. And He is the heart of why. And 
if we start reading Scripture with the question what instead of why, our vision gets fuzzy. We'll look at the story of creation in Genesis 1 and we'll turn it into spiritual mechanics and worry about things like science and faith, which are, of course, important, but are missing the point of Genesis 1. Because Moses writes down a creation story for a people who have just spent 400 years as captives in Egypt. And so the way he tells the story is very similar to the way the Egyptians told the story of creation, except he turns their creation story on its head and says, no, it's not quite like that. I'll use the form you recognize. But remember, this is a people who would not comprehend a globe or Google Earth. So he uses what they know. And then he says, no, creation didn't happen It wasn't carved out of the bodies of dead gods. It was created out of nothing by the God of everything. He's created, he's done all of this. And then, at the crowning moment of creation in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we read, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, created, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. That's the heart of the why. And many scholars will tell us that the creation account is set up to show God creating the world, the Garden of Eden, as a temple. A temple to himself. And in the ancient world, when you built a temple, there was one last thing that you put in the temple. The very last thing you put in the temple. The image of the God. God puts us in his temple as his image. The Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is icon. In Egypt, there was one person who was the image of the gods. That was Pharaoh. The kings were the image of the gods in the ancient world. And Moses says, no, no matter who you are, whether you're important or you're not, Powerful or weak, from the right family or the right ethnicity or from the right side of the tracks, everyone is created in God's image. And then God gives us a job. Rule over the world. Stewards of what he has created. Act as my image in the world. And that's a pretty big why. And even after we humans mess this up, God continues his plan. Because in Exodus 19, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. And Moses goes up to the mountain to speak with God. And in verse 6 of Exodus 19, God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? 
They stand in between the people and God, right? Israel is to be a kingdom of priests to the world. The world who has forgotten him, who has turned away and followed other gods. And the entire Old Testament is the story of how they did that job, good and bad. And when they follow God, they're priests for the nations, and they show who God is to the nations. And when they don't, bad things happen. And we see it over and over and over again in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. We see it in their laws. We see it in the wisdom literature. We see it in their prophecies and their worship. Israel's function is to be God's image to the world. And then in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 to 24, Paul says to the Gentiles, it's us, you have been grafted in to that tree of Israel. If you follow Jesus, you are now part of that story of Israel's story to be priests. That's our story too. Peter says much the same thing in 1 Peter 2. 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, the church, get to be a part of God's story. The story that he fulfills in Jesus. Jesus born in a backwater Palestinian town in poverty and scandal. The one who Peter, just a few verses earlier than what I just read, says is the stone that the builders have rejected and is now the chief cornerstone. That means the stone that the entire building is built on and around. And over and over in the New Testament, we're told to be like Christ, to imitate Christ. Paul says to the church in Corinth that they are to be like him as he is like Christ. In Romans 8, he says we're to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 He says to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering to God. And in my Bible, one page earlier, in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 10, we read something. This is verses that sometimes we we, we know verses 8 and 9 and we forget what goes on around it. Starting in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's our why. God created us this way, and we are here in this church, in this time, in the, in the world, in order to be God's image to the world. That's the ultimate why. And it doesn't matter what our job is or what our relational status is. Whether we're important or not, we're here for one reason, to shine the light of God's glory to the world around us to our families, to our neighbors and communities, our friends and our coworkers, to one another here in this place, and out into the very cosmos itself. We are God's image, and that's a pretty big why. Of course, that leads us to the second question, which is how do I get on the right path? It's one thing to know why we're here. It's another to function that way. Because, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, are followed by Genesis 3 and the fall. And the rest of the Bible basically tells the story of us messing up over and over and over again. Remember, it's our story. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find increasingly inventive ways to mess things up, to follow our own path, not be God's image. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes very clear that the single most important topic of Jesus' teaching is his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And this basically refers to the same thing, whether you hear, read kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, there's slightly different emphases. What's interesting is how often they're used. One commentator I read this past week said, that the Greek word for kingdom is used 55 times in Matthew, 20 times in Mark, and 46 times in Luke. That's a pretty big deal. It's kind of hard for us as Americans to understand, right? We kicked out King George a couple hundred years ago, right? It's even hard for Brits today to really understand because they live in a kingdom, but they have a monarch who is... Not much in the way of power, right? She's pretty universally revered. Her family, well, their power seems to sell tabloids and keep gossip TV functioning. But God's kingdom is something different. Dr. Jeremy Treat is a pastor in Los Angeles, and he's recently written a book called Seek First. Uh, I reference it up there. I haven't had a chance to read it all But I I recently listened to a podcast where he was interviewed, and he says his definition of the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And I thought that was was a, a really good, succinct way for us to look at it. God comes first. And his kingdom is a is one where he actually reigns and has a people and a place. And the world gets reoriented around God. And it's really interesting that the very first words of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel in 1.14 are, the time has come, the kingdom has come near, repent and believe the good news. And basically the same thing is said in Matthew chapter 4 in verse 17 and 23. In verse 23 we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The kingdom of God is not possible without Jesus. And today, many people talk about the kingdom of God as being distinct in some way from the church and somehow better than the church. You know, the church is messed up, and it is. But as one uh, theologian said, you cannot compare the church now with the kingdom as it will be. That's an unfair comparison. We tend to idealize the kingdom, and it becomes very much something like doing good things for the betterment of the world, which is a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not really the kingdom. Because lots of people, people who have no particular belief in Jesus, can do good things for the world. In fact, probably do as much good things for the world as we do. We see it every day. And as Christians, because we believe in our why, because we believe that we are created in the image of God, we should expect that people who are not Christians would do good things. Why? Are we fall, aren't we fallen? Aren't we messed up? Yes, of course we are. We are incapable of getting to God on our own. However, we are created in the image of God, and nothing that we or anyone else can do can completely erase that. I mean, this is God's handiwork, the God who created the entire universe, and we think that we can stop that from coming through in some way, shape, or form. The kingdom starts with God. It's His rule and His reign. And it includes us in it if we choose. Jesus' life and death and resurrection inaugurate the kingdom. Theologians use the phrase already and not yet. Which means that the kingdom has begun, but it's not completed yet. We live in this in-between time, kind of like December 29th. Not quite one year or the, or the next. And part of the reason that I'm convinced that we, we have a hard time with this is we let our vision get clouded. We let our true why get overrun by small and petty things and we mistakenly redefine our why and our how gets off track. But Jesus didn't come and just announce the kingdom and move on to other more important things. It was the single most important part of his teaching. And one of the places you can see this most clearly is by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 to 7. It's the longest sermon of Jesus recorded. It's filled with references to the kingdom. In 5.3, the very first beatitude, the start of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 5.10, the last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 5.19 and 20, he talks about fulfilling the law in the kingdom three times. Skip ahead to 7.21, right near the end. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with the kingdom. And I could go on and on throughout. I would challenge you, at some point, over the next few days, go back, read through this sermon, and look for both explicit references to the kingdom and for the themes and ideas that reinforce 
the idea of the kingdom, and you will be amazed. And sometimes, because of the things that we think we know about heaven, we hear or read Matthew say, kingdom of heaven, and we think heaven is after you die, and this is not here in the real world. We think it's spiritual, the spiritual world, not now. We think about getting saved, and the Sermon on the Mount shows us that the idea of doing good things is important, but not enough. And so is the idea that the kingdom of heaven is spiritual, but not physical. Scott McKnight is a professor at Northern Seminary in Lyle. And he, he calls people who think about the kingdom in terms of doing good things, in terms of social justice, for instance, he calls them skinny jeans Christians. And he calls the other group who think, about, who, who think about the kingdom as unleashing God's redemptive work in the world in only a spiritual sense, he calls them pleated pants Christians. And he goes on to say that both of those aspects, both of those things are good. And we ought to be doing good things and we ought to be teaching and participating in sharing God's good news of personal redemption. The thing is, if we only look at one side or the other, we get into trouble. You will notice that I am wearing jeans. They are not skinny, nor are they pleated. The thing is, if we only look at one side or the other, we get into trouble. And we use the idea of kingdom to make the ultimate justification for whatever our bent is, right? Whatever the good thing is we want to do, whatever the right thing is to believe so that we don't have to do. The rule of God is redemptive. First and foremost, it is redemptive, but it doesn't stop there. Because if we do, we can be completely orthodox and cold and dead. And Jesus doesn't give us that option. The entire Sermon on the Mount connects these two sides and more. The Sermon on the Mount is, I believe, a manifesto of citizenship in the kingdom of God. And first century Jews were looking for a king like David or Judas Maccabeus who in the intertestamental period fought a war to gain freedom. They wanted someone to throw off the Romans and Jesus' vision was radically different than what they expected, what we expect. They wanted a physical kingdom we think of a spiritual one, typically. And the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' other teachings frame the kingdom in three basic ways. Upward first, toward God. Inward, a change of heart. And outward, our relationships with others. And Jesus connects the spiritual to the here and now. Citizenship in the kingdom to being like the Father, he says in 548. But what I want to focus here on about this kingdom thing is maybe a little bit unexpected. Before I get there, one side note. There's a lot of talk today about the difference between the kingdom and the church. And we don't have time to get into that now, but I will say this. In Matthew 16, 18, Peter confesses Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus affirms him and says, I will build my church. And the writer of Hebrews in 10, 25 says, don't forsake the meeting of yourself together. And Paul's writing, all of it, is to the church. And neither Jesus nor Paul nor the writer of Hebrews, probably a disciple of Paul, maybe Timothy or... Apollos, Silas. None of these know the kingdom 
without the church. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian without the church. And I'll just leave right, that right there for another sermon. But in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, we read this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Sounds exactly like where we're at, heading to in January 1. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus connects the world we live in, the world that we toil in, that we are concerned about with the spiritual realm. There is no separation. And all that stuff in verse 25, food and clothing, the stuff we are about to make all kinds of resolutions about. Jesus says, hold on. Yes, the Father knows that you need these things, but pagans run after those things, not you. Stop. Change your view. Remember your why. Seek God's kingdom and His righteousness. If we want our vision to remain clear... If we want to make sure that we have our why right, we have to seek his kingdom first. That's our how. When we seek God's kingdom instead of trying to create our own, we're on the right path. And when we do this, we will also realize that the kingdom is everywhere. Our king lays claim to all of our lives. His life, death, and resurrection show us that God's kingdom has broken into our world. And this is the good news. Following King Jesus is a dangerous thing because he demands everything, complete allegiance. It's not a Sunday morning thing or when I get together with my small group thing. Citizenship in God's kingdom is a thing that matters in all places, in all times, in every area of our life. All of that identity stuff God says it's mine. Why? Because God created us in his image to be his priest to the world. How? By seeking his kingdom above all else. So what do we do? This is the hard part, right? Okay, fine. Get the why, get the how. What do I do? How do I make this practical? I have a friend, a really, really smart guy, editor at Tyndale guardian of the text of the New Living Translation, and we had a conversation once, and he said something like, sometimes I just need someone to put a shovel in my hand and say, dig here. It has to get practical. At the same time, if it's all doing, even the good things, well, we know it's not enough, and we're going to burn out. 
McKnight puts it this way. You cannot bring the kingdom of God into the public sector, sector without the redemption of God as the foundation of the ethic. I think that's really, really true. Spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount and it gets really practical. But we don't have time to go through all of that this morning. So I want to turn to Mark 12, 28 to 34. I don't know what your heading says in your Bible. Mine says the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came to, and heard, heard them debating, Jesus and the Sadducees. Noticing Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In this passage, um, the, the guy accepts what Jesus says, and Jesus says he's not far from the kingdom of God. Love God and love others. McKnight calls this the Jesus Creed. And we could spend weeks just on this passage. Jesus quotes two commands from the Torah from the law. The first, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Shema in Hebrew means here. To this day, Orthodox Jews repeat the Shema twice a day as they get up and as they go to bed. And if you want to look at it further, it's Deuteronomy 6, basically 1 to 9. And the second part is Leviticus 19.18 that he quotes. And about the time that Scott McKnight wrote his book, The Jesus Creed, he decided, well, if Jesus does this, what I'm, if, if he's going to do this, I'm going to say this every morning before my feet hit the ground. And I'm going to say it as I go to bed every night. And then he added something, and he said, anytime it comes to mind during the day, I'm going to recite this creed. And he started doing this. And it changed not only the way that he viewed the world, but what he did as he interacted with the world. How he viewed others and what he did with them. See, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, is really interesting. Jesus quotes the part to be recited. But after that, in verses 6 to 9... Moses gives several different um, things that, that they are supposed to do in and around this. In verse 6, he says that these commands are to be on your heart, in your gut, really, <clears throat> at the core. He says in verse 7, to impress them upon your children and to talk about them privately and publicly, to make it a constant part of your life. And in verses 8 and 9, he talks about visual reminders, for, for this stuff. Write it on the doorpost. If you think putting verses on your mirror or on your wall or on plaques is something new, no. Moses got there first. What does loving God look like? Deuteronomy tells us pretty clearly it's about worship, praise, thanksgiving, knowing who God is, seeing our why clearly and seeking His kingdom. 
from what we've already seen, it's about drinking in, consuming who Jesus is, not simply relegating him to warm, fuzzy feelings on Christmas or Easter. We love God, John tells us in 1 John 4, because he first loved us. In Colossians 2.9, Paul reminds us that in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. We love God when we love Jesus. And Jesus tells us that we love him when we follow his commands. We can't do this when we don't know him or don't know them. To know him, we have to follow him first. When we think about what love looks like, in Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable that we call the prodigal son. We had a sermon on it not that long ago. In it, we see a picture of a father who suffers humiliation at the hands of one son and contempt by another. A father who loves both children and who works for their restoration no matter the cost to himself. That's the kind of love God offers. It's the kind of love God asks us to have in turn. But Jesus does something remarkable here because he adds to the Shema and you don't do that. And when he adds to the Shema in Leviticus 19, it's love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment is to love God and love others. That's what Christians are supposed to do. And I have to ask, is that how the world sees us? Sadly, I don't think that's mostly the way that it is. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus tells stories about what love looks like. God's love for us. Stories of how we are to love each other. And Luke records a similar one to the one I just read from Mark. But there's a difference. This man has probably heard Jesus teach this truth before, so he's ready with the answer. But there's a twist. He wants to justify his actions. So he says, who's my neighbor? In Luke 10, 29. And what does Jesus do? He immediately tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What does love look like? It doesn't look like the religious people. Doesn't look like the priest or the Levite. We've heard the story, right? The guy beat up on the side of the road and the priest and the Levite go by. And Jesus' listeners would not have seen the priest or the Levite as doing something wrong. Because you know what they were doing? That guy might be dead. I'm observing Torah. I can't touch a dead body or I will be unclean. But the Samaritan obeys. They were obeying the letter, not the spirit of the law. They didn't love their neighbor. The despised half-breed, the one who didn't love God properly, the one that Jews avoided going through that area so they wouldn't be contaminated, he's the one who shows love, who binds up the wounds, who pays for lodging during the recovery and checks on the well-being of a stranger he doesn't know, but he does know because the implication in the passage is that he's a Jew, that the man who's been beat up is a Jew. So the Samaritan knows that the guy he's helping probably hates him. And Jesus says in Luke 10, 37, be like that guy. We love God when we love others like that, even our enemies. And that's tough. It's hard enough to love the people we're close to, the people we like. Tell me you've never wanted to strangle your kids or your parents. If you say you haven't, you're lying in church and shame on you. 
In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. We can modify that. Loving others is a lovely idea until we have to love the atheist, the Democrat, the Republican, my neighbor, the Muslim, the guy who stabbed me in the back at work and took my promotion, the person who seems to have it all together when my life is falling apart. That guy wearing pleated pants or skinny jeans. We shouldn't be surprised that God asked this of us. It's the consistent message of Scripture. Micah 6.8 and Hebrews 10.24 and 25 and Ephesians 2 8 to 10 that we just read. The scripture of store the story of scripture is one story. It's our story. And it's the corrective we need to have 2020 vision in 2020. And I hope this morning that you've seen that getting the order right, starting with why, makes all the difference. But we really can't separate the why from the how from the what. And I've taken us all over scripture this morning because I've been attempting to show us that this is one message. This is God's message for us. It all points to Jesus and this matters. And I'll close with this story that I think pulls it all together. For years... Scott McKnight taught intro to Bible at North Park College University now in Chicago. And he would teach, and there's a lot of kids that went to this school who were not believers. In the first day of class, he would give a test, a basic Bible knowledge test. Like, who's Adam and Eve? Noah and the ark, this kind of stuff. The kind of stuff we do in Sunday school. After class, a girl comes up to him and says, I think I have to drop this class. It's not for me. And he's, really, why? I don't know anything about the Bible. Scott says that he was very smart. Not even the first one of the question. No, not even the first one. And he stopped and said, okay, hang on. What's your name? Andrea. Andrea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit in the back of the class, and every time that you, that I'm going over something and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, I want you to just rub your nose like that. I'll stop, I'll back up, and then you can nod to me when, you, when things are okay. And so he does this. He says, over a period of a couple of weeks, she is at first constantly rubbing her nose and then later it goes away. The Bible is completely foreign. Writes a paper towards the end of the, the class and she tells him a story in this paper. See, her father had been abused by a Catholic priest in Chicago and so he refused to let them go to church, have a Bible in the house, talk about God, anything. She literally knew nothing about Scripture, about God, about Christianity. And by the end of that class, by the end of her time at North Park, she graduated with a nursing degree, she was a follower of Jesus. 
And the reason why was not because Scott argued her into the kingdom or gave her the right information. It's because he stopped and asked her her name and said, what can I do to help? Scott loved God by loving this girl. That is our why. And that is seeking the kingdom. And that is, I believe, what a 2020 vision for 2020 looks like. I'll end with a benediction from Jude. I'm going to do a longer version than just 24 and 25. Starting in verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.